Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. Great to see you this morning. Welcome to church. If you didn't know that we were about to begin a mini-series on sexual integrity, or you did know and you forgot, and you just realized what you got yourself into this morning, how do you think I feel? i got to be up here talking about it for the next 40 minutes. I get awkward just talking about normal run-of-the-mill things, things like humility and giving to the poor, just basic Bible stuff. Most of the time when I'm up here sharing, I'm super uncomfortable. i got social anxiety and stuff like that. But then when the topic of sex comes up, times that by a factor of 10. Uh, it's just a bit, I'm like sweating up here already and we've just gotten started. But we've been praying a lot this week. We've been praying for you. We've been praying for the community because we know this is a loaded topic. But as you know, sex is an important topic and it's a very normal topic even for the church. Nearly every single New Testament letter includes instructions about sexual formation. Jesus talks about sex about as much as he talks about money and enemy love. So before you get weird with me for like making it weird with the person who you brought to church this morning because you invited them to Riverbend and you said it was really fun and now I'm going to be talking for 40 minutes about sex, keep in mind uh, that there are 53 Sundays this year and we're going to be spending three of them uh, talking about our sexual integrity. And then we'll be on to things like biblical community and a few other things before the end of the year. So if my 11-year-old daughter can survive me giving this talk today, you can survive hearing this talk today as well. So I need to begin uh, with a couple of disclaimers. Fair warning, though, it's about to get very real. Number one, this series was born out of a need that we've observed in our church, both men and women. Sexual brokenness is the main issue of our time, partly due to our culture, partly due to our demographics, and partly due to the lack of practical teaching on how to control your body. Over the years, we have heard it all. We've heard stories of sexual abuse. We've heard stories of men who were exposed to pornography as young boys, multiple different forms of infidelity, people trapped in various forms of sexual addiction, sexual predators masquerading around as pastors and spiritual leaders. We've even worked with families of underage victims of sex trafficking. We have heard all of the stories and we have attempted to serve and to care for those families as best we can. What I mean by this is that our generation has been devastated by sexual trauma. And my experience is that we are desperate to know, what is my future given my, given my sexual history? What is my future given my sexual history? Where can I go to receive grace? Where can I go to be healed and restored? So my goal um, is to show you through the scriptures how Jesus wants to heal you and to actually give you a hopeful vision of future holiness. And my other goal is to begin building a community that's radically committed to sexual formation, that a hurting world actually wants to run to with all of their sexual brokenness to receive grace and wholeness and forgiveness and life that comes in the name of Jesus. Number two, we want this series to be an encouragement to you. 
not another source of pain. And there are many people right now who are praying over this gathering and praying specifically for those of you who are victims of sexual abuse. But I also know that there are many of you who are single and you want to be married. And often when the church talks about sex and sexual brokenness, it's only in the context of husband and wife. And there's just more to it than that for you. And you just want your church to see you, whether you're male or female. And we just want to say we see you. And, and we are so glad that you're here. And this series has been designed with you in mind too. And then there's others of you who've just dealt with unwanted sexual behavior for years, and you're pretty cynical at this point, like a few more teachings about sex won't get you to the life of purity that you're hoping for. And for that, I just want to say I understand where you're coming from. On a personal level, I do not have a sexual addiction myself, although I have to be super vigilant about my internet habits, and I have several other layers of accountability in that area. But in this series, we want to hear from people in our community who have been in recovery, and are thriving today because they have been retrained and reformed by Jesus in a holistic kind of a way. This, this series will not be theoretical. It will be on the ground and practical because that's exactly what we need. Last disclaimer, I'm not here to tell the world what to do with their sexuality. We need to have a talk about what Jesus says his followers do with our sexuality. See, we're going to be talking about the sexual formation and how it's affected all of us, but I'm primarily explaining it so that we can see how the sexual revolution has colonized the church. Remember, Jesus said that we're a city on a hill. We're a light in a dark world so that people will see our witness and be drawn to join the kingdom of God. That's the hope of the Christian vision. So this, of course, includes needing to comment from time to time on broader society, but it needs to be coming from a place of credibility and integrity from within the church where we're actually modeling a more compelling vision for our sexuality than what people get from TikTok and Netflix. Dr. Nancy Percy in her great book, Love Thy Body, writes, what Christians do with their sexuality is one of the most important testimonies that they give to the surrounding world. And sadly, I speak at a time in history where this is the biggest area of hypocrisy in the church. I said this last week, the largest evangelical denomination in the world who has been boldly and loudly and harshly speaking out against the LGBTQ plus community is also the biggest culprit of willfully suppressing thousands of cases of sexual misconduct by its own leaders. It's a good old fashioned cover up in the American church and we are a part of that evangelical church. So this is our problem too. See, the same people who are telling non-believers what's wrong with their sexual ethic are conveniently forgetting Jesus' teachings to the religious elites. Get the log out of your eye <laughs> before you start pointing out the speck in someone else's eye. You get the log out of your eye. This is the moment that we're living in and we gotta get our house in order and that's what this series is all about. The New Testament expects at the Greco-Roman world of the first century, places like Colossae, which we just read about, Corinth, Thessalonica, places like this, the New Testament expects that it's going to be filled with pagan sexuality. And the letters are written to Christians who grew up in those cultures to live free from sexual immorality. And I think that uh, Philip Yancey said it best. He says, I know of no greater failure among Christians than in presenting a persuasive point of view on sexuality. Outside the church, people think of God as the great spoil sport of human sexuality, not its inventor. In a sex-saturated society, even true believers find it hard to accept that the traditional Christian morality offers the fullest, most satisfying life. The Pope utters pronouncements, denominations issue position papers, and many Christians ignore them 
and follow the lead of the rest of society. And surveys reveal little difference between church attenders and non-attenders in the rate of premarital intercourse and cohabitation. Surveys also show that millions of people have left the church in disgust over its hypocrisy about sex, especially when priests and ministers fail to practice what they preach. It's kind of an intense way to start the series. Welcome. So where do we go from here? What are we supposed to do with all that? Well, what we need is a vision from God about our sexuality that's better than the secular story. So we need to settle in our hearts. Is Jesus offering us life to the full or not? And if he is, that, that, then that includes our sexuality as well. And we need to live into his vision faithfully. So to frame up the conversation, I just want to begin with this question. Whose vision of sexuality are you following? Whose vision of sexuality are you following? John Tyson, a pastor from New York, says that there are three basic stories for living out your sexuality. The secular story, the shame story, or the sacred story. The secular story is about authenticity and freedom. What you do with your body is a private matter. It's entirely up to you who and when and how and uh, what your sexual life looks like. Whoever you have sex with, it's only up to you. And this vision is pervasive. It's everywhere in our society. For example, it's the ideology of Princess Elsa in Let It Go, where she sings this, you don't believe me, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Right? It's just a freedom from ideology. And it's not just, in, it's not, by the way, if you disagree with my biblical theology, just go along with me on this. Because if you are on my, on my page, you don't have to listen to Let It Go ever again. You can just be done with it. But this is also like an explanation for just about any behavior in our culture. Billie Eilish said in a recent interview, my thing is that I can do whatever I want. It's about what makes you feel good. So that's common and ubiquitous in our culture. But it's not just pop culture. It's also etched into stone in the law of the land in which we live. In the ruling on abortion rights in Planned Parenthood, the Supreme Court wrote as their ruling, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. In other words, we're completely autonomous, and being autonomous means that we get to define morality, and we get to do whatever we want. And this is what philosophers would call negative freedom, the removal of any and all constraints on my choices. And negative freedom is a freedom from mentality, anything outside of myself, political authority, religious authority, whatever infringes on my personal freedom is inherently oppressive and it needs to get away from me. John Mark Comer in his book, Live No Lies, writes this, this view of freedom arises out of a postmodern worldview that has no belief in moral absolutes or any ultimate meaning to life beyond personal happiness. In this view, the opposite of freedom is constraint. Whether it comes from an external authority source, a sacred text like the Bible, or a binding commitment such as marriage or parenting. Freedom in this take is the liberation to do whatever the hell we want, to define the good for ourselves, to pursue and enjoy and buy and sell and sleep with and do and say whatever we desire, of course, quote, as long as it doesn't harm anybody. And in this paradigm, authority is the enemy of authenticity, and sex is just an appetite. If you're thirsty, you drink. If you're hungry, you eat. If you're aroused, you have sex, or you watch porn and you masturbate. And this worldview has grown and exploded in the last couple couple of decades in the form of an idol worship that I like to call just the cult of pleasure. 
The cult of pleasures where sexuality has gone way beyond promiscuity to the point where we've lost all sense of what sex actually is in the first place. That it's the deepest form of relational intimacy. And it becomes just a means for me to gratify my base desires. And St. Augustine, in his book Confessions from the, first, from the third century, one of the first great academics of the faith, he says that that's actually the definition of sin. Sin in, in, in Augustine's paradigm is love that's meant for God and others turned in on the self. That's what sin is in his paradigm. Again, Nancy Percy writes this, the same bleak view of sexuality is inculcated in young children. A video put out by Children's Television Workshop, widely used in sex education, defines sexual relations as simply something done by two adults to give each other pleasure. No mention of marriage or family or even love or commitment. No hint that sex has a richer purpose than sheer sensual gratification. This is a wild take on what sex actually is. It's not historic. It's actually very, very new. And in Love Thy Body, Percy goes on to explain the irony of this view in that it's supposed to be about self-love and it's supposed to be empowering, but it actually results in a really low, not high, really low view of the human body. For example, in Rolling Stone, uh, an article back from 2014 on the sexual revolution of millennials in the 21st century, they interviewed a rock band, the quintessential sex symbol of our day, and they were interviewed about their sex exploits on the road. And one of them said this, quote, at the end of the day, Sex is a piece of body touching another piece of body, just as existentially meaningless as kissing. <laughs> and you might think to yourself, man, of course that's what a rock band would say, but that's not how most people think. But in fact, it is sort of the nihilism of our modern era. A scientist who heads up the AI research team at MIT said this about us as a species. A human being is just a big bag of skin full of biomolecules interacting by the laws of physics and chemistry. So this view that, that, that basically we're, we're all just operating by natural laws and impulses, so therefore everything is fair game, it begins with like this pleasure-filled promise that sex is all fun and games, just have at it. But in the end, it's actually the opposite. It is dehumanizing. Because in the eyes of your sexual partner, you're becoming subhuman. You're not a person with an innate value to be loved and romanced and cherished and devoted to. You're simply a piece of flesh with sexual organs to be exploited for their own desires. And you end up being sacrificed on the altar of the cult of pleasure. And this is objectively what's happening in the world around us. The results are devastating. Millions of people in our generation are being ravaged by the effects of sexual brokenness. I recently heard the pastor use this metaphor that sin is like a baby tiger. In the beginning, it's cute and it seems harmless. But in a year, that baby tiger is a 400-pound monster and it wants to eat you as its next meal. And I think that that's a really uh, potent, uh, let's say, uh, way of describing Sid. And in response, we're beginning to see a very unusual, something that you wouldn't expect to actually see. You're beginning to see a new phenomenon in secular culture. Because of the staggering amount of people who are dealing with sexual trauma and dysfunction, as we speak, this movement is self-correcting. Not because of any concrete moral reasoning, but because people are being devoured as a consequence of rampant sin. You have this example of a popular book called The Ethical Slut. You didn't think I could work that word into a sermon, did you? <laughs> Trust me, I didn't think I could a week ago either, but in my research, came across this book. 
This is a manual for polyamory without destroying your soul or your many partners. And as you can see, it's got about twice as much hype as any book by Tim Keller. This is a popular, popular read in our time. We've also got the recent cultural phenomenon in hookup culture where people are quickly signing consent waivers before jumping into bed so that they, that they, so that they don't get thrown into prison for sexual assault. So, the, so we're acknowledging, no, sex still has a lot of power, just pretending that it doesn't. You also have this brand new movement, uh, the, the NoFap movement in Gen Z, where secular voices are advocating for abstinence from pornography because young people have been so warped by porn that they're actually unable to get aroused in an actual sexual relationship. And no fat, we're told, will recalibrate your sex drive so that you can get, you can get aroused in front of an actual sexual partner and you can form new neural pathways in your brain. Okay? It's also just known as Jesus' sexual ethic, right? But now all of a sudden that a neuroscientist is saying it, now it's like a new wellness practice or something like that. It's kind of wild. So these are attempts by secular society to minimize the risk of the pain from the story of authenticity and freedom. And in the biblical paradigm, it's never real freedom to begin with. It's actually the opposite. It's slavery. Jesus said in John chapter 8, very truly I tell you. In other words, he's emphatically making his case here. This is what's true. Anyone who's a slave or anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And then a sentence later, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Obeying your desires leads to slavery. Obeying the truth leads to real freedom. So in other words, to Jesus, freedom from authority actually makes you a slave. Why? Why is this the case? Well, because when we're only doing what feels good and what feels right, we're being driven by our passions. We're being driven by our base human wants and desires. And those urges are very strong. I understand. I uh, I, I, I was an 18-year-old man at one point too, and I, I remember what, how strong those urges actually were. But obeying those urges, whenever they arise in my body, is actually not freedom. It's compulsion. It's compulsion. And compulsion, left unchecked, turns into an addiction. And that's what we're seeing. Sexual addiction rampant across our society. For example, any child that's not given a restraint when it comes to what they eat for dinner... What would they end up choosing to eat for dinner 10 times out of 10? Junk food, candy, soda, whatever. Why? Because they cannot control their urges. They don't know how to do that. And it's our job as parents to put constraints on those urges so that they don't become addicted to junk food and ruin their life as a result. Andrew Sullivan, who's a brilliant sociologist, who's the first person that I'm aware of who sounded the alarm on the addictive nature of the iPhone back in the early 2010s, he recently published an article in New York Magazine that I think is super fascinating. In it, he writes this. For most of the ancients, freedom was freedom from our natural desires and material needs. It rested on a mastery of these deep natural urges in favor of self-control, restraint, and education into virtue. And they'd look at freedom, they look at our freedom and see licentiousness, chaos, and slavery to desire. They would predict misery, not happiness, to be the result. So in other words, it's no wonder that the results of the secular revolution, excuse me, the sexual revolution of the 1960s, on top of another secular, sec, sexual revolution, on top of a se another sexual revolution built on the cult of pleasure would be so devastating. It's obvious why it is. This explains the deep pain of our generation. Despite the mantra, it's all about what makes you feel good, millions of people in our society are reeling from sexual trauma. Many people in this room even. 
So freedom in the wisdom cultures of old and freedom according to the scripture especially is not a freedom to do whatever we want, Galatians chapter 5, but a discipline over our impulses. So that's the ethical vision that shaped the modern West. And again, we're not condemning Western culture. We're asking the larger question, to what level has that vision colonized our thinking? So when you hear Princess Elsa sing Let It Go, does it hit your ears as a worship song at the top of the charts of the cult of pleasure? Because that's exactly what it is. It's a freedom from any external restraint. I get to do what I want. It is the worship song of the, of the, the last 10 years. And this also begs the bigger question of our sexual formation. Who am I becoming by doing this with my body? Who am I becoming by doing this with my body? So the second story is sort of in response to the secular story. And it's what I would call shame-based moralism. It's probably the most common, popular Christian response to the secular story. So into this narrative that you can have as much sex as you want with no rules, shame-based moralism says, yeah, but God says we're not supposed to do it until we're married. And once you're married, you can never get divorced. That's the response. It's not a more compelling vision. It's a less compelling vision. And according to Tyson, the story is steeped in legalism and hyperliteralism. It produces fear and secrecy. I've seen this story way too many times to count. I know I'm not supposed to be doing this with my sexuality, and yet I cannot control my body. I cannot control my urges. And so I'm willfully sinning in secret. No one will know about it, and I'm completely miserable. I've heard that story from men in their 50s, women in their 20s and younger. Like this is an issue that we are all facing at some level. And as, I, as I've said before, I think that a lot of the reason why this has been uh, shrouded in secrecy is because of hypocrisy. All of the same data that suggests that most Christian men are addicted to pornography also suggests that Christian pastors are addicted to pornography at about the same rate as well, which is just crazy to think about. And recently I was hanging out with a family in our church. They're newer to our community. They're really devoted to Jesus. They love him and uh, they love us. They're loving getting to know our church. And we had an amazing time together. And we we're talking about this issue of sexual wholeness. And the woman paused for a moment. She looked at me. I could tell she was like trying to frame a question, but she really didn't know how to say it. And so she just blurted it out. She said, you haven't given me, you haven't given me any reason not to trust you. But how do I know that you're not addicted to pornography? Like, who's keeping you accountable? Which, if in my line of work, that's a gut punch. That's a, that's a punch to the gut, right? And, but my, my answer to that was like, um, that's, a phenom- that's a great, great question. It's an important question even. And then I told her about how my wife sees my internet history, and I've got layers of accountability there. And then with our elder team, we regularly talk about holiness and confess sin together. And this is a primary thing that we like to do as a, as a church. And that's what I explained to her. But, but, you know, it's interesting. I remember several years ago when people were kind of new to Riverbend, they were interested in like our theology of the Holy Spirit. What do we think about prayer? What do we think about various areas of doctrine? Now what it seems to be is that people are much more concerned about my personal integrity. Like, are you going to blow this thing up because you haven't got your life in order? Because you haven't been giving your life wholly to Jesus. And frankly, I think it's a great shift. I think it's an important thing we need to be talking about. And our spiritual leaders have to be able to hold up to the scrutiny of what's going on in our churches and what's going on with our personal holiness. Because we are uh, accountable before God to that. Paul tells Timothy to watch your life and your doctrine carefully. He's speaking as an apostle to a young pastor. 
And so I think this is an important shift. But when it comes to shame-based moralism, if you're dealing with sexual brokenness, the message is just try harder. Just keep trying, which I think just perpetuates the cycle of shame. Because eventually you get tired and fatigued because willpower cannot sustain holiness. And then one day you mess up, and then you mess up for a second day, and a third day, and a fourth day in a row. And the cycle just keeps on going and going and going. And this is the culture, the, the, like the primary culture that we have grown up in, if you've grown up in the church. Um, I know that the purity culture started with a really great kind of premise and idea, a beautiful heart. But I grew up in the 1990s in the suburbs of Portland in a Christian church. And I remember the book, the primary book that was circulating in those days was a book by Josh Harris, who said, I, uh, this book's called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And the promises that he made in it were sort of pseudo-biblical promises, but had some elements of truth, but they weren't actually what the Bible was trying to promise. And eventually he just became horrified. I don't actually fault him. I think he wrote the book 20 years too early. He was 22 when it got published. And he probably should have sat on it for 20 years and had wisdom and love poured into that through the community of, uh, of, of believers around him. But that's not what happened. They sold it by hundreds of thousands of copies all at the same time. And an entire generation of Christians was sort of shaped by this book. And eventually he became horrified at the amount of people who were disillusioned about faith in Jesus because of his message. He would get letters after letter after letter of people who were saying to him how harmful their book was. They had done everything that the book had said, but Prince Charming never came. Saved themselves for marriage and all of these, the hope of this promise, but nothing actually ever came of it. And so eventually this author, good, good man, eventually quit the church, left his wife, and now he's left the faith entirely. This is a cautionary example that we need more than aspirational Christian theology and 15% more willpower. That's not the answer to how we get over this addiction to sexual brokenness. If you're caught in the trap of sexual addiction, no amount of prayer and reading your Bible will result in purity if all you're doing to replace the secular vision is trying to pretend like it doesn't sound fun. And that's honestly not a vision at all. It's an anti-vision. Here's how a lot of Christian accountability around sexuality goes. I know your hormones are raging. I know everyone in your stage of life is hooking up. I know porn is always available to you and you're constantly being tempted. Just don't do it. Try reading your Bible. And then we're shocked and surprised when it doesn't work. And the reality is it's just not a compelling vision. It's, it's not a vision at all. It's an anti-vision. It's an anti-vision. By that I mean this. We've allowed our culture to define sex and what pleasure is and what delight is and what joy is. We've allowed our culture to do that and we haven't bothered to try and reclaim it at all or give each other a reason why God has given us the rules around sex in the first place. So in reality, the secular vision of sexuality is not good. It won't lead to a life of flourishing. It's like a baby tiger. It's cuddly and seems innocent now, but when you keep feeding it, in six months, it's going to want to eat you alive. And that's what the secular story does. The secular vision of sexuality is a distortion of the authentic article. It's a corruption of the biblical story. It's a less fulfilling option than God's design. So what we need is we need the spirit of God, we need the scripture, we need the wisdom of the historic church to show us the third better option, the third story, the sacred story. So what is Jesus's vision for your sexuality if it's not just an anti-story? Now, it's important we labor this point for just a quick moment. If he's the author of life, 
then his vision can't be the anti-vision. It cannot be less inspired. Jesus' vision for your sexuality cannot be less inspired than the porn industry or Hollywood. It's got to be the genuine article. We've got to settle in our hearts that God knew what he was doing in the Garden of Eden and that he still has your best in mind. So when he made husband and wife and they were both together naked in the Garden of Eden and they were unashamed, that was the very good Edenic ideal for human flourishing. That is what we're hoping in. And a drummer from an Austin-based indie rock band isn't going to be able to improve upon it. Hollywood, the porn industry, is not going to be able to improve on Jesus' vision if he's the originator of life. So according to the Bible, your sex life is a part of a much larger sacred story. Sex is not just an appetite to satisfy. It's a powerful and holy act of intimacy and oneness that points to the relational intimacy that Jesus has designed for your soul to find ultimately in eternity. The hope-filled uh, hope future for your sexuality is pointing towards the reality that you have been destined to be united with Jesus forever and eternity. And all of our longings are headed in that direction, and that's where we find ultimate fulfillment. The closing image of the Bible is a wedding. It's a wedding. And it mirrors the Eden story, except instead of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve being united as one flesh, the marriage is between Jesus and his church. Look it up. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the next time you're at a wedding celebrating, you're drinking champagne and dancing and eating a $3,000 cake, Look around at all of the joy and the delight that we're all feeling about these two lives being joined together as one. And pay attention to the reality that this is all just a signpost to eternity with God. The most expensive party your parents will ever pay for and you will ever pay for is a shadow. It's just a signpost of what is to come. The genuine article is the culmination of the greatest love story in all of history. And that's coming at the end of human history when Christ comes back and sets up the wedding feast for us to be united with him in perfect union forever into eternity. Are you guys with me on this? This is beautiful. Glenn Harrison wrote a great book called A Better Story. If you read one book, read that one. If you read two books, read Love Thy Body. It's also really good by Dr. Nancy Percy. Our sexual longings are a homing instinct for the divine pointing us to the only intimate union that fully satisfies, the one with God himself. This is where your life is headed, and this is where you find the ultimate fulfillment for all of your longings. And your sexual desire is a homing beacon for the divine. It's basically alerting you in your body that what we actually want is a oneness and a union with the Lord himself. I had to cut out a ton of quotes and verses that I wanted to share for today, but I have a couple more that I have to share with you because they're just too good. Philip Yancey, I'm going to hit you again with Philip Yancey. He, he writes this, sexual intimacy is a sacred pointer to something even greater, something truly out of this world. In one sense, we are never more godlike than in the act of sex. We make ourselves vulnerable. We risk, we give and receive in a simultaneous act. We feel primordial delight entering into the other in communion. Quite literally, we make one flesh out of two different persons, experiencing for a brief time a unity like no other. 
Two interdependent beings open their inmost selves and experience not a loss, but a gain. In some way, a profound mystery, not even Paul dared explore. The most human act reveals something of the nature of reality, God's reality, in his relations with creation and perhaps within the Trinity itself. This is what God's vision for sexuality is actually about, and the cult of pleasure does not have the best offering on the table for you. God has a much better offer. You are not just a bag of skin filled with biomolecules operating by natural laws. Your sexual desires are not supposed to be just turned inward on yourself. When you submit to the authority of Jesus, you choose of your own free will to place yourself under external authority, and the result is true fulfillment and real joy. John Mark Comer again writes, If I stay in my constraints and I let them do their work, and if I consider that my duty to follow through on my commitments is just as authentic as my feelings and desires— then my constraints have the potential to set me free from the tyranny of my own flesh and forge me into a person of love. So good. That is a much more compelling story than the world has on offer. It won't lead to brokenness. It won't lead to shame. It won't lead to um, uh, like a, a bunch of sexual dysfunction or something like that. It will lead to wholeness and it will lead to being formed into the image of Christ. We want to reclaim Jesus' vision for sex and the rules around sex so that we can actually restore dignity and honor to sisters and brothers instead of exploiting each other to live out our pleasure-filled fantasies. Wouldn't it be so amazing if the world knew that this place was a place where women could come and be seen as sisters, as co-heirs, and not as sexual objects to be exploited for their fantasies? Wouldn't it be incredible if the men of this community were known to not obey their desires and being out of control of their impulses, but as men and women who are capable of mastering their desires in favor of a much bigger, better story that we're living into that's leading us to heaven. I think the world is hoping and longing for this story to be true. So as we end, whose story of sexuality are you living into? And like I said at the top, we need more than a high-level talk on what's right and wrong about sex. We need a counterformation movement. So we are calling you, if you are a part of this community, we are calling you to be radically devoted to sexual formation, a lifestyle of submission to Jesus' ethic, and a culture of honor for sister and brother, and a culture of consecration where we actually set ourselves apart from the things that erode our integrity, the things that diminish our witness. If we're going to be hosting God's presence, if we're going to shine the light of Jesus in our time, then we must be devoted to sexual wholeness along with the rest of our lives as well. And we also need to cultivate a burning heart of agape for our world so that the men and women in our city who are reeling from the sexual trauma of their past as well and their sexual dysfunction, that they would actually want to turn to the church for grace and, and this is the place of healing for them. We want that to actually be the case. Unfortunately, the church has not been a place of refuge for people who are hurting. It's actually been a place where a lot of shame is dealt out, not restored and healed. And so that's what we need to focus on as a church. A radical commitment to sexual formation and cultivating a burning heart of agape for our world. 
And I recognize that the minority of us, the, the, the minority of us have the luxury of starting with a vision for formation and compassion for the world. The, the reality is that the majority of us need a ministry of sexual recovery, not just formation, because our lives have been marked by sexual brokenness through a porn habit or date rape or sex-fueled media or wounds from childhood or a promiscuous stage during college or like a hundred other things that could be in play for you. So what we need is more than just formation is we need to begin with recovery before we can be truly reformed into the image of Jesus. And the reality is that this ministry is very hard, but it's not complicated. A ministry of sexual recovery is hard, but it's not complicated. It's about you and I turning to Jesus with the one area of life that we have held from him. And over the last year, we have done, as your leaders here at Riverbend, we've done a deep dive on different methods of sexual recovery. And we found what we believe to be the absolute best partner out there for us. And uh, that is a ministry called Pure Desire. Pure Desire. And it's a ministry based out of Portland. And you're going to be hearing a lot more about um, Pure Desire in the next few weeks. But we want to invite anyone and everyone, man or woman, married or single, old or young, who's experiencing unwanted sexual behavior, to come and to learn more about the ministry of Pure Desire and how you can be set free. And then starting next month, at the end of next month, we are launching Pure Desire, several different groups uh, for men and women. And you don't have to be enslaved anymore. The message is that you can be set free from this. This does not have to be your story forever, and you can be set free. You need to be set free, and the church is here to support you. We want to be your covering, your network of care, your spiritual directors, your helpers. We want to be there for you. And so it's time that the days of shame-based moralism are gone, and we say, you know what? No, I believe that Jesus' vision is better. I just need help to get there because I've been deformed, and I need a ministry of reformation. So Finally, we need front runners. We need front runners. People whose lives have been affected by sexual addiction, but that have made it out the other side into a life of purity and consecration. And we are fortunate here at Riverbend because we have several front runners in our church. People whose lives have been marked by all kinds of sexual brokenness, but are now healed and walking fully uh, clean and pure and uh, consecrated life. And I have the honor of knowing these people, knowing their stories, caring for them along the way. And as we close and throughout this series, what we want to do is highlight some of those stories and so that you can know that you are not alone and that there are people who have forged this path in our little community of Jesus followers and who will come back and show you the way as well. This is a powerful thing. I want you to just think about for a moment the courage and the boldness that it would take to come up and talk about this specific issue. If this has been the thing that you struggle with, if this has been the thing that you've been dealing with for a lot of your life, the boldness and the courage that it would take for you to come up here and to share a bit of your story, share how you got free and share how you, others can get free too. This is a, historically comes with a lot of shame, but we want to honor the front runners in our community that have owned up to the fact that I can't do this myself, I need the help, and I want to be free. So we honor those of you who've gone before us. You're going to hear from several of them over the next couple of weeks. But I want to introduce you today as we close to a, a dear, dear uh, couple in my life. Um, Ryan and Christiana are my brother-in-law and sister-in-law. Um, and um, um, you met Grace earlier. Uh, Christiana is Grace's sister. And we have just seen over the years a marvelous 
but very difficult journey where God has brought a lot of healing and freedom to them. And I asked them to come and share a bit of their story, and they agreed to do it. So put your hands together for Ryan and Christine. Right. Well, um, again, thank you guys for sharing. Ryan, why don't we start with you, and could you just tell us a little bit about how this issue has um, presented itself in your life and how you got free? Yep. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we were talking before, we would much rather talk more about the Holy Land tour than about this issue. Yeah, but Holy Land, uh, you know, that 15% try harder, 30%, 100%, none of that works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, anything. Yeah. But we'll get down to business here, I guess. Thanks for the chance to be here uh, this morning, and... Yeah, I'd like to talk about anything than what my notes here say. I've sweated through my shirt and completely bit off all my fingernails. <laughs> um, so here we go. Us being up here is a testament um, to the slow and steady work that God has done in me and in our marriage over the last several years. Standing up here or sitting up here in this capacity was not a life goal of mine. Um, <clears throat> and I haven't seen anybody do this at church before, so... I guess we'll give it a shot. <laughs> like many of you, I grew up in a Christian home and went to church regularly. I noticed some things about my parents' marriage that I really wanted to differently um, when I grew up, but nothing crazy. I really loved God and pursued him in high school, and I thought I was ahead of the curve. But sometimes, life goes different than what we want. In my late teens, I looked at pornography on our family's computer with dial-up internet. This was a much safer digital world than we have today. It was before smartphones. And when I played Tetris on my Game Boy, I was not inundated with ads as our kids are today. Yeah. This exposure became the dopamine drug that I returned to often. I knew it was wrong and I tried to stop while I stayed in Christian circles throughout the rest of high school and into college. I would try not to look at pornography, but get enough time the opportunity and stress, I would eventually cave in and use it to momentarily escape from the pressures and disappointments of life. In 2009, I met my bride, and in 2010, we were married. She was innocent, her love was pure, and I really tried to step up 25% uh, and be the man for her that I always wanted to be. I white-knuckled my way through the first little while of our marriage, but eventually... I returned to the well-rutted track of my binge purge sin cycle. All this was not in, in secret. I spoke to almost every pastor of every church that we attended. I was in the army, so we moved often. All the pastors offered up encouragement and verses, but none offered up tools that addressed both the dopamine chemical dependence that I relied on to escape and the spiritual heart issues that I was in need and healing from. You want to talk about, like, weird Christmases? Like, hey, Andrew, I'm still struggling uh, with stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's keep working on that, and uh, I'm here for you. All right, let's go open Christmas presents now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My heart became calloused, calloused to God. Why would he lead me through the Army, deployments, police work, really gritty, tough jobs, but not give me the tools to be successful spiritually? I was calloused to Christiana and all of the pain that I was causing her. I was callous to other Christians and a heart to grow alongside of them. In 2017, uh, we got out of the army and moved back here to Oregon for a fresh start. 
with the same calloused heart. But now I was searching for the identity and community that the army had provided that I was no longer part of, and I returned to old habits. About three years ago, in a last stitch effort, Christiana found the Pure Desire Ministry. I began by attending a men's group called Seven Pillars of Freedom, uh, while she attended a spousal support group called The Trail and Beyond. I wish this was the end of the story, and we moved into a fully restored marriage, but character miracles take time. I have now gone from attending a group to recently completing a group as a co-leader. This 20-year journey through attempts of try harder to fix my sin had left me discouraged in my faith, shamed for my sin that I said I would fix. I set out in life wanting to do better, wanting to serve, and wanting to follow God, but my sin delayed all of that. It has cost me almost my marriage, my relationship with my kids, stunted spiritual growth, lower and distracted work output at whatever job I had, hmm. withering away as a Christian in church and feeling an anger and isolation towards God. I'm still not sure why my story went this way, but that part does not matter as much. I'm less concerned with why it did and more grateful for God's goodness and where he has led this. I see that as because of his goodness that my sin didn't take me farther away than it did. Yeah. It is because of his goodness that he provided a wife that prayed for and encouraged me in my faith even when I was blind. It is because of his goodness that I kept a kernel of faith in him when others around me in the same circumstances were falling away. It is because of his goodness that my shame and defeat didn't drive me to other addictions or other harmful behaviors. It is because of his goodness that I'm here before you. Yeah. And it's because of his goodness that you are here today. Mm -hmm. If this is your battle, the fight's not over. Real encouragement, true freedom, close fellowship, and full healing and restoration of your brokenness is possible through God, his love, and his son. A tool, as Andrew mentioned, that he can work through is the Pure Desire Ministry. Mm -hmm. uh, their mission is to help people take back their lives from unwanted sexual behavior and betrayal trauma through a process that is biblically based and clinically informed. There are a few of us couples um, <clears throat> here at Riverbend that have gone through these groups, Seven Pillars of Freedom for the Men and, and Betrayal and Beyond for the Women. We will be facilitating groups here at Riverbend this fall in addition, uh, Pure Desire also offers groups to support women struggling and same-sex attraction struggles. Yeah. If any of this hits close to home for you, then please consider joining us for a truly transformational journey where it is safe and real. Oftentimes, the pain that this particular sin has caused creates isolation. And the best way to healing is entering into a true community outside of isolation with other believers, as Jesus calls us and working through the hard issues that led us to acting out in these ways in the first place. My experience is that these men groups were the true community that I always longed for in church but never found. So if this is part of your story, consider joining us in a group this fall. to know that my heart is breaking for the women in the room who are facing the devastation of betrayal right now. It's a unique pain with so many layers words can't fully express. But know that my grief knows your grief and you are not alone. 
Shortly after marriage, about 12 years ago, when I discovered that betrayal trauma was now a part of my story, I felt denial, anger, sorrow, disillusionment, uh, but mostly grief for what I knew life to be and knowing it wouldn't be that way again. My marriage would never be the same and I would never be the same. For us, Discovery Day was not one event, it was a chronic cycle. It impacted every area of my life, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, financially, socially. Many of life's most significant dates and memories were tainted by various confessions and discoveries. I tried everything I could to make things better, ignoring it, keeping it a secret, excusing it, overcompensating, being overvigilant, none of which worked and all of which added to the exhaustion and the heartache and the shame. I felt stuck in fear and discouragement. I became a shell of myself. I wanted to run, I wanted to hide, and I wanted to hold it all together. What do I do? Do I stay? Do I leave? How will this impact our kids? How is this my life? It's not supposed to be this way. The days and the years went by with steps forward and many backwards. We represent the long recovery journey, a slow miracle, as Ryan says. What I truly needed was a specialized network of care so I could process the impact and equip myself with tools to move forward towards healing for myself first and then my marriage. Andrew played a key role in spiritual direction and intercession for us, and God brought incredible biblical counselors and marriage coaches and our family along the way that we'll forever be indebted to. Eventually, I discovered the ministry of pure desire, as Ryan said, and as Andrew mentioned, uh, they offer two different recovery groups, one for the struggler and one um, to support the partner. Um, joining their Betrayal and Beyond Women's group was the catalyst of change for me, and it quickly became the safe and supportive place that I've been I had been yearning for. After experiencing how transformative the group environment was, I have since led several online groups, and God continues to grow my passion and heart to help other women. Today really is one of those marked moments for me as Ryan and I are up here stepping into the light after years of stumbling around in isolation. Healing is not a linear process. I really wish it was. Um, it's been the hardest and most grueling road I've walked. I so admire and respect Ryan for his commitment to the process, his humility and teachability and perseverance. Not every man chooses this courageous road to freedom and to rebuilding, uh, but he has, and I'm thankful for that. This is not a story we ever wanted. The reality is I would much rather be in the back of the room sipping on coffee and innocently oblivious to this problem and this particular type of pain. Uh, but God has been gracious. He's shown himself strong and present and faithful every step of the way. Scripture says in Isaiah 43, 19, you see I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. I believe for some of you, where there seems no way right now, God's making a way through for you. Mm -hmm. He sees you, 
And today is the day of breakthrough for those who choose it. There is a path forward, one of holistic, genuine healing. And this is our ultimate why behind launching these Pure Desire groups at Riverbend. Myself and three other women who are incredible and that you'll get to know in the coming days um, are leading these um, women's groups together and we're excited and expectant for that. Our hope is this will be a safe place for you women to come as you are and to feel seen and equipped and mostly loved on. There will be the upcoming Q&A night as um, coming up on the 15th of October where you can come confidentially, find out more information, and if it's the next right step for you. And more details to come on that. But we hope that sharing our story um, has encouraged you to share yours by stepping into the light and into community. And we're expectant for what the Lord is doing in our city and in our church. And we're believing and claiming for brighter days ahead and complete freedom over you your marriages, your families, in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Will you please stand with me? Yeah. Thank you, guys. Yeah. What, what you just heard was um, battle-tested voices of people who have walked this difficult road and stand here before you as victorious people who made it, who survived. And there's a lot of you here in the room who haven't started this journey yet. You're wondering if you feel like you can even address this issue and if you could ever have any hope of being free of it. We stand here just to tell you that it's, it is, it's totally possible, like they said. It's a, it's a long miracle, something that takes place over a period of time. And we just want to encourage you to step forward into the light, to come be a part of this community. Come to the info night on October 15th, 530, 7.30. Um, more details are on the screen behind me. This is if you're a man dealing with sexual addiction, if you're a woman who's dealing with betrayal trauma, or if you're a woman who's dealing with sexual addiction, we want to have room and space for each and every single one of you. Um, you are a part of this community, and we want to help be a part of your process. We want to be a part of your network of care. So let's, let's pray and thank the Lord for what he's done. Um, and uh, Lord, we just want to say thank you that you are who you are, that you stand, uh, stand in heaven or you are seated in heaven as the, as the real victorious one. You have overcome death. You have overcome sin. And by turning to you, we are set free. By walking in the truth, we are set free. By obeying our desires, we're enslaved. But by coming to you, and giving you all of those desires and submitting to your ethic and following your way, we are made whole. So I just pray for everyone here in the room. All of us are dealing with some level of sexual brokenness, and we need your help to be restored. We need you to help us recover, God. We need you to form us into your image. And so we just ask, not just for an inspirational talk here once in a while, but we ask for a counterformation movement of men and women who are devoted to walking in sexual wholeness and purity. So, Lord, we love you. We bless your name. And we just want to say thank you for the ways that you have been good to us. Thank you that you have been good. Like Ryan is able to stand here and say, you are good. You are good. Despite everything, you are good. And so we turn to you now and we respond to your goodness. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.